Hebrews chapter 4. I'm going to read from verse 9 down through verse 13 for our Bible study tonight. The writer of Hebrews says, There remains, therefore, a rest to the people of God. For he that is entered into his rest, he also has ceased from his own works, as God did from his. Let us therefore labor to enter into that rest, lest any man fall after the same example of unbelief. For the word of God is quick or living and powerful and sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing even to the dividing asunder of soul and spirit and of the joints and marrow and is a discerner of the thoughts and intents of the heart. Neither is there any creature that is not manifest in his sight, but all things are naked and opened unto the eyes of him with whom we have to do. The writer of uh, the book of Hebrews is systematically building a case to his audience that Jesus is better. His audience is first century Hebrew Christians, hence the name Hebrews, that had converted to Christ or made a profession to Christ, but now we're being tempted because of family pressures and society pressures to turn back from their profession of faith in Christ into the rituals and uh, facets of the old covenant or of the law that they had um, experienced as Jews in Judaism. And the writer is writing with the objective of showing that although those things of the Old Testament were in fact ordained of God, and they were in fact good, yet Jesus, who is the fulfillment of the new covenant, and is the greater one, that he is superior to each of those things. And so we began by saying that Jesus is superior to the prophets. The prophets were good, but Jesus is better. Then he said, he moved from there to angels. And he said, angels are good, but Jesus is better. And then he went on to Moses and Joshua and the ministry of them bringing the people out of Egypt and into then the promised land. And he shows how uh, Jesus is better because he's the fulfillment of a greater covenant and he's the uh, initiator of a greater rest. And that's where we left off in chapter 4 talking about this rest and this idea or this concept of the rest of God. And the case that he's building now through these two chapters is that the rest that Jesus provides to the recipient of the new covenant or to the saved person or the born again person is a greater rest than what anyone could have ever experienced under the old covenant or under the Judaic system. Now, what they had in the Old Covenant, the rest that they had, they had a Sabbath. They had one day in seven that was ordained of God that they would cease from their work for the week and that they would give themselves to relaxation and to the things of God. And that was, to them, the rest that was afforded them. Also, we learned in the last chapter that not only was their rest the Sabbath day, but also the promised land the very land that they inhabited as a nation that was given to them by God, that that was also uh, metaphorically called their rest. 
And that is that God gave them the land and in it there were houses that they didn't build, vineyards that they didn't plant and uh, and he blessed them there and, and he called it the land of their rest. And so the rest of the old covenant was a one in seven concerning time and it was a, a place where they were, where God was with them and God was prospering them and where God protected them. The Jews also considered in the old covenant their rest to be all of the history of their posterity. They rested in the fact that they were the seed of Abraham. You'll recall that there was an argument when Jesus uh, was on the scene and um, Jesus was confronted by some of the religious Jews in that time. And they said, are you greater than our father Abraham? And Jesus looked at them and he said, listen, before Abraham was, I am. You know, and he meant what he said when he said, I am. And it sounded like it sounded like. But they rested in the fact that they were the seed or the descendants of Abraham. That was their confidence. They looked at their past and, and they looked at the access <clears throat> that they had to God as a nation through the priesthood and through the various uh, sacraments that they would fulfill. And they considered that to be their rest. And so there was a rest for the Jews in those things. However, the writer of Hebrews is presenting Jesus as the superior rest and, and, and the reason why Jesus is a superior rest than anything that the old covenant could afford is because what Jesus did is once and for all, final and forever. He says in verse 10 of chapter 4, he says that he or she that has entered into his rest has also ceased from their own works. In other words, for the believer in Jesus Christ who is at rest in him, there is no longer a, a series of works or religious duties or things that we uh, um, apply ourselves to, sacraments. None of that anymore means anything. But our faith in the fact that Jesus died and rose again for our sins, that that alone is enough for you and I. And therefore, we can cease from any religious activity that we might feel pressured or burdened to perform in order to work our way into God's favor. We have ceased from our own works. The rest of the New Testament believer is also rest that stands in a position of being at peace with God. Romans chapter 5 verse 1. It says, therefore we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. The Jews could never say that under their old covenant system. There was always an anxiety in their hearts as to whether or not they were doing enough or whether or not they had done enough to earn God's favor. And any peace that they had because of the things that they had done only lasted as long as their behavior was in line with what it was supposed to be. And thus the rest was at best a roller coaster rest that was up and down depending on what day it was or what time of the year it was or how their behavior was. But it wasn't a rest. It was a roller coaster. But in Christ, we have peace with God all the time. From the moment we put our faith in him and we say, Jesus, you are the Lord of my life and I trust you for the forgiveness of my sins. We are placed in Christ and the Sabbath rest that you and I experience there is not one day in seven or according to our position at a given moment, but rather we are seated in Christ and therefore that peace we have, that rest is lasting. We have it constantly, consistently. And the rest that we have in the New Testament is not a rest that boasts access to God through a priesthood and through a sacramental system on occasion, but rather the rest that you and I have 
I'm sorry, not the rest, but the access that we have to God is constant and bold. And that's an amazing boast, an amazing privilege. The Jews could never boast of that. If they wanted to go to God, they had to come through a priest. They had to bring an offering and they could only come at specific times and they had to wait in line because there was a lot of people that wanted to get to that priest and get to God. But for you and I, we have access immediately, boldly, right now. We turn our attention towards heaven. We open our mouth and speak. And the Bible tells us that God hears our prayer and that if we ask believing, we have the things that we've asked for. And thus, the things that God has given to us in the New Testament, the rest that we have is a superior rest by leaps and bounds to anything that they had in times of old. Well, the writer of Hebrews takes this explanation of this rest and he adds to it now an exhortation to you and I to make sure that we're resting. He says again in verse 11, he says, let us labor, therefore, to enter into that rest lest any man fall after the same example of unbelief. The word labor there, that's the only time this word in the, in the Greek is translated labor. The word in the original translation is the word spidazo. And you, the only reason I'm telling you this is because it sounds like speedo. And you'll remember that because it's just a funny picture in your mind, you know. But here's the idea behind the speedo. He's saying, let us therefore speed or make haste or be diligent, or endeavor, or study. All of those words are, are, are translated to that same word spadazo at various places throughout the New Testament. But the idea is, let us endeavor, let us make speed, let us study to make sure that we are in that rest. That we are not, as Christians, New Testament believers, in some place where we're not resting in Christ, but rather we're on this roller coaster of up and down, in and out. Am I doing good enough? Is God for me today? Today I'm nervous. I'm not sure. Tomorrow maybe he is. But am I really at rest in Jesus Christ? Jesus said in Matthew chapter 28, verses uh, 28 through 30, he said, Come unto me, all ye that labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. He said, take my yoke upon you and learn of me, for I am meek and lowly of heart, and you will find rest for your souls. And that's the will of God for every one of us, is that our soul is at rest. Not necessarily our body, you know, that comes and goes. But his desire for us is that our soul would be at rest, that we can trust and lay our head down every night and rise it up again every morning and walk throughout the day knowing that things are right between us and God, not because of us, but completely because of Jesus Christ. In Isaiah chapter 11, uh, verse 10, the prophet Isaiah, uh, speaking by the Spirit of God, talks about what Jesus Christ would provide, and he uses these words, and they're beautiful words. He says, And in that day there shall be a root of Jesse, speaking of Christ, who would come from the line of Jesse and David which shall stand for an ensign of the people, and to it shall the Gentiles seek, and his rest shall be glorious. And anyone who knows what it's like to not be at peace with God and be trying to find their way into it and knows the burden and the weariness of what it is to try to work your way into God's favor and yet constantly feel like you never measure up, and then to come into the rest that Jesus Christ provides and to be able to breathe and sit and relax and realize that I'm at peace with God because of Christ. That's a glorious rest. 
And the writer of Hebrews is saying, don't come short of that rest. It's going to be through unbelief if you do. You say, okay, well, if I'm to make speed, if I'm to speedo into that rest and study to be into it, how do I do it? Because to be honest, I think every one of us from time to time, we struggle with this, don't we? I know that I can. I have a tendency to think like, okay, God, are things really okay between you and I? I know what Jesus did, and I know I could never match that. And I, I understand the gospel that I'm saved by grace through faith. But God, I know I'm not what I'm supposed to be. And, and sometimes each of us can be tempted to think that we should be doing a little bit more or that God maybe isn't so pleased with us or I'm not sensing his presence right now maybe because of something that he's doing in my life or working in me or testing or something. And so how do I study or labor to enter into the rest? Well, the writer goes on from there now in verse 12 and it almost seems like he's having an ADD moment because he says something that almost doesn't seem like it fits in the context of what he's been talking about. He begins talking about the word of God. And he says this concerning that. He says, for the word of God is living and powerful and sharper than any two-edged sword piercing even to the dividing asunder. And, you know, and he goes on through those verses as we will. But what he begins talking about now is he begins talking about the written word of God or the logos. It's what you and I would refer to as the Bible, the thing that we're studying right now, uh, the, 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 the constitution of what makes us Christians, the Bible. It's what he's talking about here. And, and it, he links it into the context of laboring or studying to enter into that rest. And so what he's highlighting for us is the importance of the word of God or the Bible and our relationship as Christians to the Bible as it relates to the strength of our rest in our relationship with him. And I don't think that there's a more important uh, aspect or ingredient in you and I coming into the fullness of the relationship that God has called us into than the Bible. The Bible is probably the most or one of the most important things that we have. And these two verses probably say more to us about why the Bible is important to a Christian than the entirety of Psalm 119. And you might say, well, what in the world is that? Uh, if you've been a Christian for a while, you know what Psalm 119 is. You know what Psalm 119 is? Psalm 119 is the psalm that you need to set a day apart to read. It's the longest chapter of the Bible, 176 verses, but yet it is all about the word of God. The entirety of the psalm talks about the Bible. I don't think there's more than 10 verses in that entire psalm that don't mention the word of God in some way. And yet the writer of Hebrews, by inspiration of the Holy Spirit, says more about the Bible in two verses verses 12 and 13 here in Hebrews 4, then 176 verses in Psalm 119. And so what, what does the Bible have to do with you and me as a Christian? Why is it important? And how does it bring us into that rest? Well, the author tells us 10 things. And don't get nervous. Just get ready to write. You know, <laughs> 10 things in these two verses that make the Bible what it is and the reason why it is so important to the Christian. The first of those 10 things, if you're taking notes tonight, is right at the very beginning of verse 12. And he says this. He says, for the word of God is living. And the reason why the Bible is so important to you and I is because the Bible is the word of God. It isn't a book. It isn't an ideal. It isn't the opinions of men. 
But what you and I hold in our hand and lays open in our lap or you're looking at on the screen are the very words that have been breathed or spoken from the mouth of God. It is not a human thing. It's a divine thing. It's not a natural thing. It's a supernatural thing. And it is powerful. In Second uh, Timothy chapter um Two, ver, or sorry, chapter three, verse 16, the apostle Paul says concerning the word of God, he says, for all scripture is given by inspiration of God. Uh, literally, it means it is God breathed and that it is profitable for doctrine, for reproof, for correction, for instruction in righteousness that the man of God or the woman of God may be thorough and complete thoroughly furnished unto all good works. And so the Bible is breathed of God. It's written of God. The Apostle Peter says it this way, just a few days before his death. Peter writes and he says, For we have not followed cunningly devised fables. In other words, these stories, these truths that are recorded, they're not fables that were cunningly devised by men. When we made known to you the power and coming of our Lord Jesus Christ, but we were eyewitnesses of his majesty. For he received from God the Father honor and glory when there came such a voice to him from the excellent glory, this is my beloved son in whom I am well pleased. Speaking of the time when Peter, James, and John were with Jesus when they heard that voice. And this voice which came from heaven, we heard when we were with him in the holy mount. But now he says this, though we had such an experience Though we heard the very voice of God coming out of a cloud and speaking to us concerning his son, even though we saw the supernatural on that day, he says in verse 19, we have also a more sure word of prophecy. In other words, the word that you and I are looking into even tonight is more concrete than though the voice of God should speak to us out of the air right now, according to Peter. He says, this is a more sure word of prophecy, whereunto you do well that you take heed as unto a light that shines in a dark place. Now picture yourself for one moment in a pitch black room. If the lights just went out and you're totally dark. I mean, there's something about that that just makes you like shake inside, right? When you're in complete darkness, and you don't know what's going on around you. And then imagine the feeling if a light turned on somewhere in the room, just a faint light in the corner of a room. You would be immediately attracted to that light and you would want to be as close to it as you possibly could. And Peter's saying, listen, you should pay attention to the Bible in that same way. It's a dark world and yet there's a light. And we should do that until the day dawns and the day star arise in your hearts. Knowing this first, that no prophecy of the scripture is of any private interpretation. For the prophecy came not in old time by the will of man, but holy men of God spoke as they were moved by the Holy Ghost. In other words, the scriptures, whether it be the prophets of the Old Testament or the epistles of the New or the record of the Gospels, they aren't devised fables that were written by the will of men, but rather they were inspired by the breath of God. And so what we hold before us right now is God's divine inspired word. And that's important for us to understand that this is the word of God. When I teach the Bible to my kids, 
It's something that was impressed upon me from the time um, that, that they were just born. I remember just even from the time Hosanna was, she couldn't even talk yet. And I would just take her through her little Bible. And we've been doing that ever since. But every time we start over again, and it takes us a little bit longer each time. As they get older, we go a little bit more in depth. But probably five or six times now we've been through the Bible with them, the older ones at least. And every time we start, again, I start the same way. And I, I wonder if they'll start to catch on to it. But I always begin by saying the Bible. We have the Bible before us. And you know why the Bible is, is so important to us? Because the Bible tells us, number one, about God. It tells us everything that we need to know about the God who made all things and who made us. And we can know him through his word, God. And then I tell them, second of all, the Bible also tells us everything that we need to know about life. God's the author of life, and he's laid out before us everything that we need to know about life. So everything that you could ever need to know about life is contained within his revealed written word. Number three, and this one might hurt a little bit, I always tell them. I say that the Bible tells us about ourselves. The Bible's going to tell you about you. The Bible knows you better than you know you. And you're going to learn a lot about yourself, some things you like and some things that you don't like when you study the Bible, because the Bible knows you. And then number four, the Bible tells you truth, that God cannot lie. If he lied, he wouldn't be perfect. And if he wasn't perfect, he wouldn't be God. He couldn't be God. And so everything contained in the scripture is true. Everything that we need to know about God, about life, about ourselves, about truth, whatever is true. It's found in the Bible. Now, that we could go on with that list, but that's how I always begin with them. It's the word of God. He tells us secondly, number two, concerning this word, he says that it's alive. He says, for the word of God is living. The word of God is alive. Do you know what sets the Bible apart from every other book on a shelf? If there's a Bible on a shelf with a lot of other books, the Bible is a living book. Not that it's going to walk and grow legs and change its position, but the Bible is very much alive, unlike any other written thing that there is. It's living, it's breathing, and it's alive. What did Jesus say? He said, heaven and earth will pass away, but my words will never pass away. They will never die. Now, something can't remain alive if it isn't alive to begin with. And so Jesus even affirming the fact that the Bible is alive. Now, if it's authored by the Holy Spirit, as both Paul and Peter said in the verses that we read previously, if it's authored and breathed by the Holy Spirit, then that makes it a living book, which is interesting to me because I remember prior to my giving my life to, to the Lord, reading the Bible, I was brought up around Bible stories. I heard Bible things, scriptures taught and whatever. There were times in my teenage years that I picked up a Bible and I read it just to see what it said out of curiosity. Other times, I picked it up to be critical. I wanted to disprove it and show the Christians how foolish they were for putting their faith and trust in a fable. And no matter what, whether it was the stories as a child or my curiosity or my criticism, no matter what, I read the Bible and it was completely dead. I would read it and there was no life in it at all whatsoever. There was no life in it. So what does it mean when it says that the Bible is alive? When I was 19, I came to such a point within my life that I took my good news Catholic Bible that was given to me at some point in my youth. I threw it in my car and in a moment of a time, a season of desperation, I drove away from my home not knowing if I would ever come back. I just wanted to die. That's how low things had gotten. 
And as I drove out of the city uh, that I was from, I, I, I said these words to God. I said, God, if you're real, then I need to know that you're real. And if you're real, I'll do anything you ask of me. I'll shave my head and live in a monastery. I'll whip myself with barbed wire like we read about some of the Puritans in times of old. I'll do anything you want, but I need to know that you're real. That, do you know that was my sinner's prayer? That was me coming forward in my car with tears streaming down my face. I didn't know anything. All I knew is that I needed God or I would die. And what happened the next morning, I drove somewhere in Pennsylvania and I camped out by a river. I didn't know where I was. I slept out next to this little stream on a pillow, on the dirt, nothing over my head. And I woke up in the morning and I grabbed that Good News Catholic Bible and I went like this. And I opened it and it fell open to Romans chapter 1, verse 1. And I began reading from Romans 1, 1 and I started reading. I read through the entire book and you know what happened? The Word of God was alive. Do you know why the Word of God was alive that day? Because I was alive. And when the Spirit of God that breathed these scriptures came into my life when I opened my heart to God. There was a link, a unity between a now living man and a living word and the word of God came to life. It wasn't that the word was dead prior to that. It's that I was dead and therefore the word was lifeless. But when the spirit of God came in, he quickened the word and the word came to life. It's a living word. And anyone in here who's born again, you know exactly what I'm talking about when I say that. When the Spirit of God comes into the life, the Word of God comes to life. What didn't make sense previously will then later on. It's alive. 1 Corinthians chapter 2, I'm not going to read the verses, but Paul explains why that is there. He says the natural man can't receive the things of the Spirit of God because they're spiritually discerned. Neither can he know them. But when the Spirit comes in to a life, then the Word of God is much, very much alive in such an amazing and incredible way. Also, as a Christian, I don't know if you've experienced this. I hope you have. But have you ever had it where you've read a verse or a passage or a chapter, maybe 50 times, 100 times, and and you saw it and you read it and it made enough sense to you, but then you read it just that one more time. You're going through and or you hear it in church and something happens where the light goes on and you go, oh, Whoa, I've never seen that before. I probably read that before, but I've never seen that before, what that is. That's the living word of God. If the Spirit breathed these things into existence, then he is able to make these things jump out at us at the time that we need them. And that's a way in which we hear God's voice. And it's amazing how that happens so many times to us uh, throughout our lives. I remember there was one um, instance where I, I was seeking the Lord in, in prayer and asking him to do things in my life that I, I knew that I didn't deserve. And, and that's kind of a stupid saying because we never deserve anything in our lives at all, at nothing, you know. But I was, I was asking God for things and my faith was a little bit shaken. And I remember saying to God, and I said, God, I'm asking you for things right now that, that you did for David and you did them for Abraham and you did these things for Jacob but I'm no Jacob and I'm no David and I'm no Abraham. And God, I don't know how or why you might even consider doing the things that I'm asking you to do right now because I am so not what I'm supposed to be within my life. And I think it was that very day the Lord had me read. I I, I mean, he didn't say go read it. I just read Psalm chapter 22, which was written by David. 
And David, it's that psalm where he says, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Why are you so far from, from me? I'm, and he's talking about this, this suffering. And he's like, when are you going to hear me, God? When are you going to do these things in my life? And then he says this. He says, our fathers trusted in you. Our fathers trusted in you, and you did these things for them. Abraham, Isaac, Jacob. But then he says this. He says, but I'm a worm and not even a man. In other words, David said the same thing to God in his prayer that I had just said to God in my prayer. David said, well, I can't ask this of you, God. I'm no Abraham. I'm no Jacob. And I'm going, this is David. You were David, you know, and you said these things to God. And the Lord used that that day to encourage me to say, look, you're my son. And in Christ, I see no difference between Abraham, David, Samson, or you. I said, thanks, Lord. You had to throw that one in there, you know. The word of God comes to life and he knows how to do it. I hope that happens within your life. Now that it's alive to us, we're exposed to the third thing. Number three is the power. He says, for the word of God is living and the word of God is powerful. Jeremiah, the prophet, chapter 23, verse 28. Jeremiah says it this way. He says, the prophet that has a dream, let him tell a dream. But he that has my word, let him speak my word faithfully for what is the chaff to the wheat, saith the Lord. In other words, you have a dream and so you go to a church service and someone says, I'm going to tell you this morning about a dream I had. And in my dream, I saw a corn stalk and the corn stalk was you, you know, and you go, oh, this is prophetic. And you start to like think some major things about to happen and the dream goes on and you're going, oh, this man is so, you know, whatever. God says, you know what that is? It's chaff. You know what chaff is? It's the stuff you spit out when it accidentally gets in your mouth when you've eaten a peanut. You know that little, that little thing that's around? You know, and you go, ah, you know, it's like, why is there paper in my mouth? You know, that's chaff. Spit it out. God says, what is the wheat to the chaff? But he that has my word, he says, let him declare my word faithfully. Here's why, verse 29. Is not my word like a fire, saith the Lord, and like a hammer that breaks the rock in pieces? Five words read from the Bible is more powerful than 10,000 dreams, no matter how spiritual or seemingly prophetic they might seem to be. The word of God is a fire and it's a hammer. It is powerful. Why? Number one is because it's concrete. There is no error anywhere in the Bible. That it is completely whole and true from Genesis to Revelation. Every verse, every chapter, every testimony, every account that is recorded in the Bible is absolutely true. And what that means is that I can stand on it and I can build my life on it because I know that it isn't going to waver or change. How often do things change? Sciences change. You know, history changes. People's interpretation of historical events, change, all that changes. The word of God will not change. It is absolutely reliable and trustworthy. And you can build your life on it. It's concrete. The word of God has the final say in everything that, that my life is. And in that there is power because I can rely on it. And second of all, the word of God is competent. Meaning that when God says something, God holds himself responsible to make sure that that something comes to pass. In Isaiah chapter 55, he says it like this. He says, for as the rain comes down and the snow from heaven and returns not, 
but waters the earth and makes it bring forth in bud that it may give seed to the sower and bread to the eater. In other words, water comes down and it serves a purpose when it comes down. It waters the earth so that things can grow up. That's the purpose. Water serves a purpose to cause things to grow. God says in the same way, so shall my word be that goeth forth out of my mouth. It shall not return unto me void, but it shall accomplish that which I please, and it shall prosper in the thing whereto I sent it. Meaning this, that if God has said something in here, if he's put a promise in here, if he's laid out a statute or a testimony, or if he's revealed one of his ways, then we as his people can rest assured that he is going to cause those things to come to pass within our lives. The promises of God are yes and amen in Jesus Christ. And his commands are his enablements. So what he asks of us, he gives us the power to do or the power to be. The Bible says in the book of Proverbs, right at the very beginning, the first opening verses of Proverbs chapter 1, it says this, to know wisdom and to understand a dark sentence. Okay, God told us what his purpose was for writing the book of Proverbs, that we might be wise. What does that mean? It means that if I read and study the book of Proverbs, what's going to happen in my life? I'm going to grow in wisdom. I'm going to be wise because God's word prospers in the thing whereunto he sent it. The gospel of John in chapter 22, in the very end, it says, I think it's in chapter 20. He says, these things are written that you might believe. Okay, God told us the purpose of why the Gospel of John was written, why it's there. It's written so that I might believe. So if I'm struggling with faith, if I'm having trouble with doubt, if I'm struggling with doubt, then I should read and study John's Gospel because God's Word is going to prosper in the purpose whereunto he sent it. That's why he sent it. First John. John writes and he says, These things I write unto you that you sin not. So if I'm struggling with sin, if there's a besetting sin and I just can't get past it, then I should read and study 1 John and let the words of 1 John get in and do some work within my life. Because it says that it's written so that I would sin not. God's word prospers in the thing that it was sent to do. And so anytime God tells us why he put something in the Bible, that something is there for us if we would allow the words of that something to get into us and affect change within our lives. It's competent. The word is powerful. God doesn't let it return void. And thus we should be immersed in it as much as we possibly can. And so faith in God's word is so essential. He says number four concerning the word of God, again in verse 12, he says that it is sharper than any two-edged sword. The idea of the word being sharp speaks of its effectiveness. Now, if you were um, a Roman and you were wielding one of their swords, whether the long sword, which was used for hacking, or the short sword that was used for more tactical, close-quartered combat, you know, you would hope that your blade would be sharp, right? Because the sharper it is, the more effective it is. And if you're fighting a battle and you have a sword, then you want a sharpened blade. You want to make sure that it's going to be as effective as possible. You don't want to stick it in someone and then have it get stuck because it was dull. You want to be able to pull it right back out again. You want to be effective. The same thing if you were on a surgeon's table and the doctor was using a scalpel, you would hope that he has sharp tools, right? Sharp also means safe and painless. And the word of God is sharp. 
And he also says that it is a two-edged sword. You know what's better about a two-edged sword than just a single blade or a single-sided sharpen? Is that a two-edged sword is effective no matter what angle it comes in from. You can backhand, fronthand, you could be coming from underneath, you can poke, you can do anything you want with a two-edged sword, and it's going to be effective in its approach. And why that's applied to the Word of God is because you and I, we should be getting the Scriptures in whatever manner or fashion we can. Whether we're listening to it as we drive in our cars and it's just going in through our ears, or whether we're taking quiet time in the morning and reading, or whether we sit at a red light and we glance over at our Bible and just let one or two verses in and do something in us, or whether we sit in a church service and listen to a message or hear one on the radio, or we're talking with a Christian friend who's sharing with us things that God, no matter what way the scripture is presented to you, it's going to have an effect within your life because it's a two-edged sword. And no matter how it touches, it reaches. It's sharper than any two-edged sword. Well, what does it do once it reaches me? He says, number five, he said, it pierces. And what the word of God can do beyond what any other book or work or word can do is that the word of God gets in, it gets under the surface. Remember when Peter preached the first sermon on the day of Pentecost? It's in Acts chapter 2. And he, he just testified for about three minutes about what Jesus did and about the Holy Spirit coming. And after preaching the gospel to the Jews who said, what must we do? It says that their hearts were pricked by the words that Peter preached. In other words, what Peter was saying, though it was going in through the ears like any other information or speech that they would hear, it was doing something that reached deeper, went further than anything else that they had heard before. It did something inside. It caused their hearts to bleed. And they said, what must we do? It elicited a response in them. And the word of God, when it is heard and spoken, it does something in the life. It carries a power and an authority that gets underneath the surface. It pierces and it goes inside. What does it do once it's in there? He says, sixthly, that it divides asunder soul and spirit and of the joints and the marrow. Is that once the word of God gets into a life, the work that it does inside the heart is that it begins to divide and separate organize, classify, and put things in the places that they're supposed to be within our lives. He says, first of all, that it divides between the soul and the spirit. The idea here, when he says this, is not so much that, that the two things are one and the same, and that he's kind of making a distinction between soul and spirit. But the word soul, it's the word suko or sukokis or something. It's where we get the word psyche. And what it speaks of in this context is the fallen mind. The same word is used by James in James chapter 3, verse 15, when he's talking about earthly wisdom and strife. And he says this, he says, the wisdom, this wisdom descends not from above, but is earthly, sensual, and devilish. The word sensual is the same word soul. You could use the word soulish. And the idea behind it is that it originates in me or it originates in the fallen man. So that's what the word of God touches. It divides between what is soulish, the old fallen man, and what is spiritual. Now, what's spiritual? What's spiritual is what is actually true. Spiritual is what is actually fact. Spiritual is what's from God and what is actually real. 
And so what the word of God does when it gets into my heart is it begins to divide or draw a line between what is soulish, merely emotional, merely cranial, intellectual and mental soul and what is true, what is spiritual, what is of God, what is profitable, what is life. All of those things. And the word is what discerns and divides between those two things. And so here's what happens. You're going through life. And you come upon a tragedy in your life. And, and you go through some things. And uh, the, the, the world's not your friend. It's not working out for you and the whole thing. And you just get raked over the coals of circumstances. One thing after the next after that. I know that's never happened to anybody here. But someone you know maybe you know, has gone through something heavy. And, and they get so confused in the whole thing and some well-meaning person will come alongside and they'll say, what you need to do right now is you need to worry about you. You need to concentrate on yourself and you need to worry about healing and you need to, you know, you need to, or you need to learn how to love yourself right now before you can worry about loving someone else. And you hear that and there's something inside that goes, yeah, you know what? You're right. I need to learn to love myself. (laughs) Listen. Then you read the Word of God. And what does the Word of God say? The Word of God says, you already love yourself too much. That's a given. (laughs) Okay? We love ourselves. You don't need... The Bible says no man ever hated his own flesh, but he nourishes it and cherishes it. We love ourselves. When you look at a group photo, who are you looking for? You're looking for you, right? And when you don't look right in the photo, you go, oh, that's, oh, I hate this picture. I don't like that picture. Bad picture. That's a horrible picture, you know. It's like the young girl who was walking along and she was, you know, discouraged and they came alongside and said, what's the matter, young? She said, I hate myself. They said, why? She said, because I'm ugly. And the guy said, no, you don't hate yourself. If you hated yourself, you'd be glad you were ugly. Right? (laughs) You You love yourself. You're not what you you wish you looked better because you want more, you know. We love ourselves. That's what the Bible says. And the Bible says the solution is not love yourself. The Bible is says deny yourself. The Bible says give yourself away. The Bible says crucify the flesh, put it on the cross, nail it there, and serve, live for others. Put someone else before yourself. That's what the Bible says. And so it's the Bible that comes in and separates what is soulish, emotional, from what is spiritual, what is real. I mean, we could go on and on and on with examples like that when you uh, hear, you know, some of the things that people say, these incredible, um, you know, whatever they are, uh, psychological things that people try to... Um, and put, put, put forward in, in the whole thing. You know, the, the concepts of good outweighing bad and all the rest. But the spirit of truth, and this is what the author is saying, stands alone and it doesn't need emotional support to buttress it or back it up. I remember um, several years ago now, I heard an amazing message. It was probably one of the most powerful messages I ever heard in my entire life. And, and I highly respected and still respect the man who gave the message. It was amazing. And it was about prayer. And he spoke about praying through the tabernacle. 
And he took the illustration of the tabernacle in the Old Testament and the nine instruments that made the tabernacle what it was. And one by one, he took those nine instruments and he interpreted them that the lampstand means ministry, the altar of incense means intercession, the laver means washing and confession, the um, ark of the, the ark the, the, of the covenant speaks of the presence, the holiness of God, the depth of His presence. And He went one by one through the tabernacle, and He said, "When you pray, pray through the tabernacle. Pray for start here, enter His gates with thanksgiving, and into His courts with praise." And He just worked His way through the tabernacle, and I was like, oh, "God, that was amazing! Thank you. I needed a lift in my prayer life, and oh Lord!" And can I tell you, my prayer life went like this it took off when I began to pray through the tabernacle. And for like three days, man, my prayer life was what it was supposed to be. And do you know what happened then? I ran out of gas. And I didn't have time to make it through the tabernacle. And I couldn't dare approach the Holy of Holies if I haven't yet gone first to the gates of praise and the laver of washing and the altar of incense and the altar where the burnt offering and the... Oh, God, I'm never going to get in there today. (sighs) You know what happened then? My prayer life died for a long time. Oh, there was the breath of something being given. My prayer life was dead. And you know what set me free? The Word of God. Because the Word of God says that we can approach boldly unto the throne of grace to obtain help in our time of need. You can go right into the Ark of the Covenant, open up the lid, fill it with water, and take a bath in there. Because of Jesus, we have access into the presence of God 24-7, right up into the throne room. We don't have to work our way in, but you know what sets us free? The Word. The Word. You can be deceived by an emotional message. You can hear a message that is so uplifting, so encouraging, and so wrong, all at the same time. But the Word of God is what sets us free. It pierces to the dividing asunder of what is soulish and what is truly spiritual. And the spiritual stands alone. It doesn't need emotional support. It doesn't need it. Also between the joints and the marrow, it separates and classifies. And the marrow is under the bone. It gets in that deep. It goes all the way to the deepest part of the life. And then he goes on to say that it is a discerner of the thoughts and the intents of the heart. In other words, it judges our motives and the reason why we do the things that we do. The Bible says in Jeremiah chapter 17, verse 9, and I know that some of you here are not going to like hearing this, but it's what the Bible says. It says that the heart is deceitful and desperately wicked above all things, and who could know it? Because we think we're pretty good, right? I mean, we compare ourselves to everyone else in the world. We are pretty good, aren't we? I know I'm pretty good. Better than you. No, just kidding. Believe me, I'm kidding. We are on such an equal ground when it comes to our morality. We have nothing before him. Our most righteous acts are like filthy rags before a holy God. And when I understand that, then I allow myself to let my guard down before the word of God to show me what's really in my heart. And so I read about the men of Shechem who were willing to use God and use religion to get what they wanted. I read about Judas Iscariot, a man who veiled his covetous, thieving heart with the phrase of, whoa, shouldn't this money have been given to the poor? Meanwhile, he's going, that's a lot of money, I could have used it. I read about Diotrephes, the man who loved the preeminence, 
I read about Demas who loved the world and forsaked the truth for it. I read about all of these people in the Bible and what God wants me to come to terms with in that is that there is a little bit of each of those characters living inside me. And the word of God is honest enough with me to reveal in my heart those things that are there that shouldn't be. And if I'm willing to face the truth of that, to look hard in the dark side of the mirror, there's a light side of the mirror that tells me the good that I'm doing. But if I'm willing to look into the dark side of the mirror, the word of God will judge my motives and my intentions there. And I have learned from the Bible to ask often the question, what's in it for me? Because oftentimes when I find that I want something or I'm doing something or going in a certain direction, if I stop long enough to ask that question, I will find that there's a crooked motive somewhere. And I want the end of things to be blessed in my life, don't you? And so I want to go the way that God wants. And so I must allow the word of God to expose the motives and the intentions of my heart in the things that I do. It also goes on to say, now in verse 13, it says, Neither is there any creature that is not manifest in his sight. Do you see that word his, the pronoun his? He has taken the word of God, which we would we would um, naturally give it a pronoun of an it or a that, And he gives it a personal pronoun of him. Because the word of God in that it's living, it is a person. And that person is none other than Jesus Christ himself. John chapter 1 verse 1 says, In the beginning was the word. And the word was with God. And the word was what? That's right. Very good, Hunter. The word was God. John chapter 1 verse 14. It says that the word became flesh and dwelt among us. And we beheld his glory as of the only begotten of the Father, full of grace and truth. In other words, if you want to know who God is, when you let the word of God affect your life, you're allowing the personality of God to become one with you. The personality of God is what's revealed in his word. And yet nothing is, is, is uh, hidden from him. All things are made manifest in his sight. He's a person. Now, the amazing thing is that his desire is that we would know him. God wants us to know him. Not about him, but know him. When you know a person, you don't need them to tell you things about themselves. When you know a person, you're dialed into their code. You know how they think. You know what makes them tick. You know them. And that's what God wants from us. He wants us to know him. And you cannot do that apart from the word. Because you can't divorce God from, from his word. It's impossible. So he says that all things are are manifest in his sight. Number nine, he says that all things are naked and opened unto his eyes. Meaning that there is nothing in you that isn't hidden from him. Do you know that God knows you better than you know yourself? I mean, doesn't he say that not one hair from your head falls to the ground without him knowing it? Do you know it when a hair from your head falls to the ground? The Bible says that he knows the number of hairs on your head. That's a number that changes daily. Do you know the number of hairs on your head? That means God knows you better than you know you. He knows us better than we know ourselves. And and so there's no profit in trying to hide anything from God because you can't. He sees all things. He knows what it is. I feel sorry for people who really think that someday they're going to stand before a holy God and they're going to be able to tell him that they were good enough or that they were a genuinely good person and that he should let them into heaven because of their righteousness because they were better then. I feel sorry for those people. You know why? Because they have no idea what God knows about them. 
And he's going to say, all right, let's just roll like three seconds of this tape. <laughs> and then the thoughts begin to be broadcast. Whoa, 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 whoa. Can we shut that down? I, I have, I, I sort of can explain that, you know. That's going to be an ugly day because he sees what's inside of us. All things are naked and opened. And then finally, number 10, concerning this word, he says, the eyes of him with whom we have to do or with him, to him with whom we must do. Understand this, that there is not a man, woman, or child alive that can escape accountability to God's word. It demands a response. And God will hold everyone accountable to what they do with it. Now, what does that have to do with the Hebrew believers? The message of the gospel is that in Jesus Christ, all of our sins are forgiven. And that God extends the free gift of righteousness to those that will put their faith in him. And for any that will put their faith in Christ, all of their sins are completely canceled out, gone. But if you desire to try to stand before God on the basis of your own moral goodness, then you don't stand a chance because he sees all things. So in closing, and the musicians can come, how does the word of God and the study of the word of God bring us into this rest? How do we speedo our way into his rest through the word of God? The ways are three. Number one, is that through the word of God, we have the privilege of knowing God. It's the highest prize in all of life that we can become acquainted with him and acquainted with his ways. And in becoming acquainted with his ways, we grow confident in his love for us and we begin to relax and realize that he's for me and not against me. And that his promises are yes and amen. In Psalm chapter 103, verse 7, the Bible testifies and it says that God made known his acts, his deeds to the children of Israel, but he made known his ways unto Moses. Do you know that we all have the choice of which side of that sentence we want to be on? We could be those that we're just familiar with God, God's acts. We could know things about him. But what God wants for our lives is that we would be familiar with his ways. And the only way to be familiar with his ways is to know him, to spend time with him, to allow his mind to renew our mind, to walk with him. That's his desire, causes us to rest. The other reason, second reason or way that the word of God brings us into rest is that his word affects change within our lives. As we allow the word of God to, to search us and as we surrender to him, he changes us from the inside out. It's the power of the word. He changes us. And then number three, Romans chapter 10, verse 17 says this. It says that faith comes by hearing and hearing by the word of God. And so as we hear the word, as we let it in, the double-edged sword, no matter which way we allow it to get into our lives, it is bolstering faith within our lives. It is going to build us up in our belief. And the stronger our faith is, the deeper our rest will go. Do you understand the importance of the scriptures? It is vital for every Christian to have a living, breathing, constant life in the scripture, in the word of God. The sad thing, it tells us in 2 Timothy chapter 4, it says that in the last days, that many will depart from the faith. 
that having itching ears, they'll no longer give themselves to sound doctrine, but they'll look for teachers that tell them things that they want to hear. That's a sad truth that we're watching happen in our days. Christians that give no credence or time to the Bible. Churches that have even thrown it away. They've traded in the word of God for emotional sermons and stories that will build an audience, but that can never reach the spirit and the soul inside. May we not be those people. But may we recognize the value and the power of the word, and may we be people that walk in it. Amen? Amen. Father, we thank you tonight for your word. We thank you for your truth. We thank you for its power. And as we break time now, Lord, here and go our ways, we pray, Lord, that the living word would pierce our hearts deep. That you would give us a love, a reignited love for the word, a reignited hunger for it. And a desire, Lord, to know you, the true and the living God. So hear us tonight, Father. Take the things that we've read. Take the things that we've heard. Apply them to us that we might know you, that we might rest, that we might stand confident, and that we might be used in these days. We commit ourselves to you. We commit you to you tonight. And we thank you in Jesus' name. Amen. Let's stand together.